Chapter Ten of the Crucifixion of Philip Strong by Charles Monroe Sheldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Gore. Chapter Ten. One day at the close of a month, Philip came into the cosy parsonage, and instead of going right up to his study as his habit was when his outside work was done for the day, he threw himself down on a couch by the open fire. His wife was at work in the other room, but she came in, and, seeing him lying there, inquired what was the matter. "'Nothing, Sarah, with me. Only I'm sick at heart with the sight and knowledge of all this wicked town's sin and misery. "'Do you have to carry it all on your shoulders, Philip?' "'Yes.' replied philip almost fiercely it was not that either only his reply was like a great sob of conviction that he must bear something of these burdens he could not help it mrs strong did not say anything for a moment then don't you think you take it too seriously philip what other people's wrongs you are not responsible am i not i am my brother's keeper what quantity of guilt may i not carry into the eternal kingdom if i do not do what i can to save him oh how can men be so selfish yet i am only one person i cannot prevent all this suffering alone of course you cannot philip you wrong yourself to take yourself to task so severely for the sins of others but what has stirred you up so this time mrs strong understood philip well enough to know that some particular case had roused his feeling he seldom yielded to such despondency without some immediate practical reason philip sat up on the couch and clasped his hands over his knee with the eager earnestness that characterized him when he was roused sarah this town slumbers on the smoking crest of a volcano there are more than fifteen thousand people here in milton out of work a great many of them are honest temperate people who have saved up a little but it is nearly gone the mills are shut down, and on the authority of men that ought to know, shut down for all winter. The same condition of affairs is true in a more or less degree in the entire state and throughout the country, and even the world. People are suffering today in this town for food and clothing and fuel through no fault of their own. The same thing is true of thousands and even hundreds of thousands all over the world. It is an age that calls for heroes and martyrs, servants, saviors. And right here in this town, where distress walks the streets, an actual want already has its clutch on many a poor devil, society goes on giving its expensive parties and living in its little round of selfish pleasure just as if the volcano was a downy little bed of roses for it to go to sleep in whenever it wearies of the pleasure and wishes to retire to happy dreams oh but the bubble will burst one of these days and then 
Philip swept his hand upward with a fine gesture and sunk back upon the couch, groaning. "'Don't you exaggerate?' the minister's wife put the question gently. "'Not a bit, not a bit. All true. I am not one of the French Revolution fellows, always lugging in blood and destruction and prophesying ruin to the nation and the world if it doesn't gee and haw the way I tell it to. But I tell you, Sarah, it takes no profit to see that a man who is hungry and out of work is a dangerous man to have around, and it takes no extraordinary-sized heart to swell a little with righteous wrath when in such times as these people go right on with their useless luxuries of living and spend as much on a single evening's entertainment as would provide a comfortable living for a whole month to some deserving family. How do you know they do? Well, I'll tell you. I've figured it out. I will leave it to any one of good judgment that any one of these projected parties mentioned here in the evening paper, Philip smoothed the paper on the head of the couch, any one of them will cost in the neighborhood of one hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars. Look here. Here's the Goldens' party, members of Calvary Church. They will spend at least twenty-five to thirty dollars in flowers, and refreshments will cost fifty more, and music another twenty-five, and incidentals twenty-five extra, and so on. Is that right, Sarah, these times, and as people ought to live now? But someone gets the benefit of all this money spent. Surely that is a help to some of the working people. Yes, but how many people are helped by such expenditures? Only a select few, and they are the very ones who are least in need of it. I say that Christian people and members of churches have no right to indulge their selfish pleasures to this extent in these ways. I know that Christ would not approve of it. You think he would not, Philip? No, I know he would not. There is not a particle of doubt in my mind about it. What right has a disciple of Jesus Christ to spend for the gratification of his physical aesthetic pleasures money which ought to be feeding the hungry bodies of men or providing some useful necessary labor for their activity? I mean, of course, the gratification of those senses which a man can live without. In this age of the world, society ought to dispense with some of its accustomed pleasures and deny itself for the sake of the great suffering needy world instead of that the members of the very church of christ on earth spend more in a single evening's entertainment for people who don't need it than they give to the salvation of men in a whole year i protest out of the soul that god gave me against such wicked selfishness and I will protest if society spurn me from it as a bigot, Puritan, and a boor. For society in Christian America is not Christian in this matter. No, not after the Christianity of Christ. What can you do about it, Philip? His wife asked the question sadly. 
She had grown old fast since coming to Milton, and a presentiment of evil would, in spite of her naturally cheery disposition, cling to her whenever she considered Philip and his work. I can preach on it, and I will. Be wise, Philip. You tread on difficult ground when you enter society's realm. Well, dear, I will be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, although I must confess I never knew just exactly how much that verse meant. But preach on it I must and will. And when the first Sunday of the month came, Philip did preach on it, to the dismay of several members of his church who were in the habit of giving entertainments and card parties on a somewhat elaborate scale. He had never preached on the subject of amusements, and he stated that he wished it to be plainly understood that he was not preaching on the subject now. It was a question which went deeper than that, and took hold of the very first principles of human society. A single passage in the sermon will show the drift of it all. We have reached a time in the history of the world when it is the Christian duty of every man who calls himself a disciple of the Master to live on a simpler, less extravagant basis. The world has been living beyond its means. Modern civilization has been exorbitant in its demands, and every dollar foolishly spent today means suffering for someone who ought to be relieved by that money wisely expended. An entertainment given by people of means to other people of means in these hard times, in which money is lavished on flowers, food, and dress, is, in my opinion, an act of which Christ would not approve. I do not mean to say that he would object to the pleasure which flowers and food and dress will give, but he would say that it is an unnecessary enjoyment and expense at this particular crisis through which we are passing. He would say that money and time should be given where people more in need of them might have the benefit. He would say that when a town is in the situation of ours today, it is not a time for any selfish use for any material blessing. Unless I mistake the spirit of the modern Christ, if he were here he would preach to the whole world the necessity of a far simpler, less expensive style of living, and above all, actual self-denial on the part of society for the brotherhood of man. What is society doing now? What sacrifice is it making? When it gives a charity ball, does it not spend twice as much in getting up the entertainment to please itself as it makes for the poor in whose behalf the ball is given? Do you think I am severe? Ask yourself, O member of Calvary Church, what has been the extent of your sacrifice for the world this year before you condemn me for being too strict or particular. It is because we live in such times that the law of service presses upon us with greater insistence than ever. And now, more than during any of the ages gone, Christ's words ring in our ears with twenty centuries of reverberation. 
whosoever will not deny himself and take up his cross he cannot be my disciple of all the sermons on christ and modern society which philip had thus far preached none had hit so hard or was applied so personally as this the goldens went home from the service in a towering rage that settles calvary church for me said mrs golden as she flung herself out of the building after the service was over i consider that the most insulting sermon i ever heard from any minister it is simply outlandish and how the church can endure such preaching much longer is a wonder to me i don't go near it again while mr strong is the minister philip did not know it yet but he was destined to find out that society carries a tremendous power in its use of the word outlandish applied either to persons or things when the evening service was over philip as his habit was lay down on the couch in front of the open fire until the day's excitement had subsided a little it was almost the only evening in the week when he gave himself up to complete rest of mind and body he had been lying there about a quarter of an hour when mrs strong who had been moving a plant back from one of the front windows and had been obliged to raise a curtain stepped back into the room with an exclamation philip there is someone walking back and forth in front of the house i have heard the steps ever since we came home and just now i saw a man stop and look in here who can it be maybe it's the man with the burglar's lantern come back to get his knife said philip who had always made a little fun of that incident as his wife had told it however he rose and went over to the window sure enough there was a man out on the sidewalk looking straight at the house he was standing perfectly still philip and his wife stood by the window looking at the figure outside and as it did not move away at last philip grew a little impatient and went to the door to open it and asked the man what he meant by staring into people's houses in that fashion now do be careful won't you entreated his wife anxiously yes i presume it's some tramp or other wanting food there's no danger i know he flung the door wide open and called out in his clear hearty voice anything you want friend come up and ring the bell if you want to get in and know us instead of standing there on the walk catching cold and making us wonder who you are in response to this frank and informal invitation the figure came forward and slowly mounted the steps of the porch as the face came into view more clearly philip started and fell back a little it was not because the face was that of an enemy nor because it was repulsive nor because he recognized an old acquaintance it was a face he had never to his knowledge seen before yet the impulse to start back before it seemed to spring from the recollection of just such a countenance moving over his spirit when he was in prayer or in trouble it all passed in a second's time 
and then he confronted the man as a complete stranger. There was nothing remarkable about him. He was poorly dressed and carried a small bundle. He looked cold and tired. Philip, who never could resist the mute appeal of distress in any form, reached out his hand and said kindly, "'Come in, my brother. You look cold and weary. Come in and sit down before the fire, and we'll have a bite of lunch. I was just beginning to think of having something to eat myself.' Philip's wife looked a little remonstrance, but Philip did not see it, and wheeling an easy-chair before the fire he made the man sit down, and pulling up a rocker he placed himself opposite. The stranger seemed a little surprised at the action of the minister, but made no resistance. He took off his hat, and disclosed a head of hair white as snow, and said in a voice that sounded singularly sweet and true, "'You do me much honor, sir.' The fire feels good this chilly evening, and the food will be very acceptable, and I have no doubt you will have a good warm bed that I could occupy for the night. Philip stared hard at his unexpected guest, and his wife, who had started out of the room to get the lunch, shook her head vigorously as she stood behind the visitor as a sign that her husband should refuse such a strange request. He was taken aback a little, and he looked puzzled. The words were uttered in the utmost simplicity. "'Why, yes, we can arrange that all right,' he said. "'There is a spare room, and—excuse me a moment while I go and help to get our lunch.' Philip's wife was telegraphing to him to come into the other room, and he obediently got up and went. "'Now, Philip,' she whispered when they were out in the dining-room, you know that is a risky thing to do. You are all the time inviting all kinds of characters in here. We can't keep this man all night. Who ever heard of such a thing as a perfect stranger coming out with a request like that? I believe the man is crazy. It certainly will not do to let him stay here all night. Philip looked puzzled. I declare it is strange. He doesn't appear like an ordinary tramp. But somehow I don't think he's crazy. Why shouldn't we let him have the bed in the room off the east parlor? I can light the fire in the stove there and make him comfortable. But we don't know who he is. You let your sympathies run away with your judgment. Well, little woman, let me go in and talk with him a while. You get the lunch and we'll see about the rest afterward. So he went back and sat down again. He was hardly seated when his visitor said, If your wife objects to my staying here tonight, of course, I don't wish to. I don't feel comfortable to remain where I'm not welcome. Oh, you're perfectly welcome, said Philip, hastily, with some embarrassment, while his strange visitor went on. I'm not crazy, only a little odd, you know. Perfectly harmless. It will be perfectly safe for you to keep me overnight. The man spread his thin hands out before the fire while Philip sat and watched him with a certain fascination new to his interest in all sorts and conditions of men. 
Mrs. Strong brought in a substantial lunch of cold meat, bread and butter, milk and fruit, and then placed it on a table in front of the open fire, where he and his remarkable guest ate like hungry men. It was after this lunch had been eaten and the table removed that a scene occurred which would be incredible if its reality and truthfulness did not compel us to record it as a part of the life of Philip Strong. No one will wish to deny the power and significance of this event as it is unfolded in the movement of this story. End of chapter 10 Recording by David Gore